Welcome to Insights, practical startup advice from founders, leaders, and VCs in an easy-to-consume format. This podcast is created by Angular Ventures, a full-stack pre-A VC firm that backs early-stage enterprise and deep tech companies from Europe or Israel that are targeting global category leadership, an emphasis on the U.S. market from day one. These podcasts are taped virtually with a live audience. To join an upcoming session or learn more about the firm and how we operate, find us at angularventures.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Angular Insights. This is our 12th episode. We are very lucky today to have Miha Breakstone back for his second Insight session. He's going to be talking about building your AI stack in-house, something which is very relevant for a lot of startups and a lot of founders, very top of mind. I'm joined by my co-host, Gil, from Angular Ventures, and also Miha. Gil, how are you? How's everything in London? I'm pretty good. How are things in New York? Well, it's good. I'm in my cabin still, really liking the remote life. No, you're actually not in Manhattan. Escape. It's definitely a different life than, than city. Miha, how's everything with you? It's really, really good. It's wonderful being back with you guys. I always enjoy speaking with Angular and uh, Anne and you know, just thank you for having me again. Thanks. So this is the second uh, session you've done with us. But just for, for people that, that don't know you, really briefly, uh, I got to meet you when you co-founded Chorus back in 2015. And I was lucky enough to be a small angel in Chorus, a uh, company that's gone on with another company really called Gong to sort of define call analytics market. You were also involved before that in the startup called Sumly, which was acquired by Yahoo. And you were involved very heavily with, with a startup called Ginger. And all of these companies, you were involved in building and deploying AI and ML and NLP stacks internally. And that's something that a lot of the companies that we invest in and evaluate, look at and meet with are struggling with and thinking about. So we thought it made sense to, to, to have a conversation specifically about that topic. Terrific. Great. So I'll start. Um, and again, thank you for, for having me. The, the title of the talk is Building Your AI Stack In-House. I'll actually divide the talk to three parts where the first part is, is quite short. I'll discuss a little about what AI is a strategy, some background. Uh, then I'll discuss uh, five reasons for building or not building your AI stack in-house, uh, pros and cons. And then walk through a real-life example where the learning is that the third component will delve a little bit more into technical aspects. Obviously, nothing confidential or anything, but a little more meaty so that if people are more technical ear and want to ask specific questions or get a, a bit more of the flavor of what it takes, we'll have that opportunity to do so as well. This talk is a talk I've been given in various, or it's an evolving talk. It's a talk that has evolved over the last four years. I first gave it in 2016 or so. And the title then was quite different. At the time I gave the, the, the talk, the title, The Advantages of Building Your AI In-House. Reflecting over the years, I, I recently changed the title, or actually this is the first time I changed the title, because I think it's, whereas in the past it was much more straightforward that most startups needed to build some components of their AI. Things have, you know, changed. Uh, a lot of it's been commoditized, and we'll discuss this later on. And obviously, it's still very popular to say your startup is doing AI, running through a few high-level figures or anecdotes or statistics. Since 2000, there's been a 14x increase in the number of active AI startups. AI investment has increased more than sixfold since 2000, and the share of jobs requiring AI skills has grown more than four and a half since 2013, which delineates the beginning of deep learning in the industry, let's call it that way. Another point of reference is all the top five companies are betting their futures on AI. Google CEO 
went so far as to say that uh, Google is an AI or Alphabet is an AI first company. All the top five, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, and Amazon have their own virtual personal assistants. So Sierra Cortana, Google Now, Facebook M, and Amazon Alexa all have built or are building their own AI hardware. This is not a fad. This is the future. Um, it's also a buzzword, so you need to be careful, but it, it's also very, very real for, for the biggest players. So at the same time, betting on AI or building your AI in-house is both extremely costly and requires expertise and focus. And many AI-driven tasks can simply and effectively be outsourced um, either by APIs or, or otherwise. So speech recognition, the Google Speech API, IBM Watson, and, and many other options are out there to, to help you deploy speech models, even uh, customized speech models very quickly. Natural language processing. So you have everything from straightforward APIs like the Google NLP API or even higher level tools like TextRaiser and so on and so forth. They're more advanced pre-trained models. So GPT-2 was released. The GPT-3 isn't released, but there's an API to it. And there are a bunch of uh, robust recipes like Par Parlay, Blender for, for managing dialogues and stuff like that. So you need to be hard pressed to start building things completely in-house. Some of these are in between. So, you know, you use uh, frameworks that are there and but you train your own, which is somewhere in between. For image analysis, there's Google's Vision Cloud API and uh, Microsoft's Computer Vision API. And additionally, there are extremely strong packages, for example, Spacey for natural language processing that allow even non-specialists to, to, to build extremely strong AI applications. And then the, the question is, and the question I want to leave this, this section with, why invest in building your own AI and hire in an AI research team? Why do that? What are the reasons? The first reason I want to address for building your, your own AI is precision. External APIs are usually either not customizable at all or have some limited amount of customization. That used to be much more true. Today, we're seeing more and more APIs that do allow some level of customization and learning. But still, you can't touch everything. You can't touch all the parameters, hyperparameters, and stuff like that. And often, when you create novel applications or tools, you need to address highly specialized use cases, what you would call standard tasks, like uh, transcription or translation or stuff like that. And these require extra high precision. So I ran through a few examples. So imagine you were building a VPA, a virtual personal assistant, that is geared towards children. Children have a very different um, pitch to their voice and acoustic models are simply not trained to, to hear them well or to transcribe them well. So you'd have to train your own acoustic model there, not to speak of different vocabulary, but the, the pitch itself, uh, that acoustic model is critical. If you were building a tool to help lawyers or business analysts take notes or summarize, you'd want to augment the standard English vocabulary with all the relevant technical terms. Or if you were building a tool to monitor movement of employees in a factory using video surveillance, I don't know if anybody thinking of China or whatever, you'd want to train your models on the available employee pictures, right? You, why, why not use that added advantage? To achieve that very high precision, you'd want to build your own AI and rather than use an off-the-shelf API. The second reason is simply cost economics. Using API isn't expensive on a one-off basis. Actually, a lot of these APIs give you the first 1,000 or 10,000 queries or words or whatever for free, sometimes even more. 
but using them at scale can incur significant costs. Google Speech API, I, I recently updated this, is about a little over $2 an hour. Not a lot if you're processing a few hours here or there, but if you're doing tens of thousands of hours a day, obviously extremely expensive. Amazon Recognition Video API, I didn't check recently, but a few months ago it was $6, $6 an hour, which is obviously huge. A key point to note is that if you're developing your own AI, there is an extremely high initial effort or initial cost to the effort uh, of building your own AI. It's hiring the team, it's setting things up, it's training, it's uh, sometimes a huge amount of money just to train your models. But ultimately, when you want to build a, a cheaper product and create higher margins, that's the way to go. So that's the second reason. The third reason is becoming more and more evident over time about privacy with GDPR and the CCPA in place. There are many cases where you just don't want to send anything to a third party at all. So if you're analyzing sensitive customer conversation, if you're building a business geared VPA, if you're analyzing images in secure locations and building your own AI means that you don't have to send uh, your data to any third party. Fourth reason for building your own AI is doing real-time. This is a little more subtle. So I'll go into one slightly technical explanation here. I won't, won't go too deep in, but um, APIs can be very quick and they can be near real-time and they become better and better over time. But you still have to account for, obviously, for network latency and communication lags. A second point, you'd have to account for buffering and segmentation, which could be arbitrary or you at least un not under your control and obviously the downtime of third parties. I'll dive in for a second to the buffering and segmentation and, and to give a specific example. If you're considering building an application that processes conversation using an external API for speech recognition with the objective of guiding a speaker during the conversation, what happens with most of these APIs is, yes, there is a streaming component in, in real-time transcription, but there's also ASR, at least traditionally, you worked by cutting streams into utterances and deciding where the end of the utterance is. And often this is 10 or more seconds between utterances. So sometimes in order to, to get the best result, you'll have a delay that is an artificial, has nothing to do with the buffering or the network latency, but just how the system decides to process and send and you know, often there are two runs on the transcription to, to get the best results. So sometimes you may be getting an artificial delay to real time. And again, usually it doesn't really matter, but imagine if you have something in a car that needs to alert you to something, you don't want a delay of three seconds there or 10 seconds there. Rather, you want it in real time. So maybe even moving to edge, edge computing and edge models. And the fifth reason, which is, I think... Uh, I don't know if the most important, but it, it carries a significant weight is that many tasks simply don't have and never will have an out-of-the-box solution. And while many standard AI tasks are supported by external APIs or highly sophisticated packages that allow non-experts to deliver expert-level AI results, this is not the case for many specialized use cases. I've given uh, a bunch of examples here, all Israeli companies. So Law of Geeks analyzes and understands the meaning of legal contracts. Obviously, without building some components of your own NLP, good luck. Tracks identifies and understands the situation on the shelf. Yes, you could use out-of-the-box computer vision, but it will only get you to a certain level in terms of precision. Zebra, the same for medical imaging. Immuni is one of my favorite companies. They do single-cell RNA analysis um, and extraction of insights. 
Obviously, uh, all of their clustering is all stuff that they built in-house. Anomaly detection for Anodot and uh, Chorus and Gong for analysis of sales conversations. I've covered the first two parts of the talk, and the, the remaining part is to walk through a real-life uh, example uh, and cover some of the you know, non-discrete, non-confidential areas of the, the AI stack at, at Chorus and discuss the journey there and you know, why Chorus decided and at what point to do what and walk through the tech stack. So I'll pause here for a second and ask uh, Yid or Anne any questions. Or I guess one, one question I would ask you, Michal, is, is when you talk about, and again, I, I apologize for my lack of data science knowledge here, but when you talk about sort of building a model in-house, right, there's, there's one level of doing that, which is where you're sort of taking a model from the public domain and you're training it with your own data set and you're tuning it and making it maybe a little better, but you're basically saying, I have a bunch of unique data um, and I'm going to use some of these models and, and get to good results with new data. And then there's another level, which is I'm actually going to go into the neural net itself and try to tune every little detail of that neural net, right? So it's not a binary, you know, zero or one, right? Can you talk a little bit about that, the levels of the shades of gray and what does it mean to actually build a model? Because some of the things you're, des you're describing sound like, well, maybe you can kind of fudge it. You can get a pretty much a good model. And as long as you have enough data to train it with, you can have something that's proprietary, but it's not super expensive to build. Right. Now, that's a great point and a great question. Indeed, there's a full spectrum from coming up with a new architecture and changing the, 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 the design of a neural network and using a well-known recipe, pressing play or train or whatever, and, you know, just putting in data. And when I say building your own AI, mostly I usually mean somewhere in between. Namely, no, you don't have to re-architecture the, the neural network. You may want to choose what the hyperparameters are, what the depth of the network is and stuff like that, how to train it, what recipe to use, how to clean the data and stuff like that. But you wouldn't build your own new architecture for training. Definitely, definitely not in 99.99% of, of cases, unless you're Google and you're coming up with BERT, right? You're like literally inventing the transformer which is, you know, a step change, but most companies don't really need that to make progress, right? If they could, obviously, it would be a huge value. But I'm not talking about hardcore AI research. Rather, I'm talking about training something that it's not just sticking in the data, right? It's more of an art than a science, actually, at this point. There are well-understood ways of how to improve the, the accuracy of neural networks sometimes. So yes, throw in more data, usually you get better, you reduce perplexity and stuff like that. But often I added more data, but the results aren't actually good or they've worsened for a specific data set. Why has that happened? How to create noiseify, create add noise into data to account for more a larger variance of, of it, possible inputs, both in speech and, and other things. So there's an art of how to make the most of your data I and mean, how to train networks to give really good results. Often we would have in the past, you'd have like a, a black box or a white box that you would just make sure that you would be making progress on and you would find that on certain areas of your of your benchmark, you would improve tremendously, but on other areas, you would decrease quality. And then the question is, wait, why? If it's counterintuitive, how do you create lack of bias in the data? You don't want to be overfitting for specific things. So mostly I'm talking about usually yeah, bringing in the right people to choose what types of networks to use, what types of approaches to use, 
and how to train them and how to actually measure that you're actually improving, that you're delivering higher precision. And there are now tools that make it much, much easier than five years ago, but it's still a lot of a dark art, so to speak, rather than a science of I'm getting closer and closer and closer. So definitely there is a spectrum. And, you know, when I say building an AI stack in-house, it's mostly bringing in researchers and engineers that know how to select the right architecture, choose the right solution, choose the right approach and, and train things in a insightful manner. So I'll walk through a real life example as a quick way of background. So chorus records transcribes and analyzes sales conversation in real time. It was incorporated in 2015 and raised give or take hundred million, according to, to uh, Crunchbase. The conversation cloud automatically summarizes sales conversation and enriches the CRM with summaries, helps rep improve by learning best sales practices and allowing real-time guidance and allows organizations to be aligned by sharing suggested snippets across the organization. The question is why it course build its AI stack in-house. The all five reasons that, that I reviewed earlier apply precision, cost, privacy, real-time, and the fact that the tasks course needed to solve didn't have an off-the-shelf solution. And to fully understand the sales conversation, Chorus uh, uh, developed their conversation. Um, you mind if I interrupt you? Was this a debate at Chorus when you were making this decision? It's a great question. The answer is no. It wasn't a debate because a lot of this we had, quote unquote, for free. The previous business unit that I had founded within Ginger, a lot of this is exactly what we did. So we built our own. We were the first, I think, uh, a commercial use of an engine called Caldi at the time, an automatic speech recognition engine, which at the time was impossible to do. It was like a spaghetti of a million different scripts all over the place. Training was like, it was a nightmare. I think we were the, we, we were either the first or one of the very, very first to use this. It was an academic package at the time out of John Hopkins. We reached out to the, the writer of the academic paper and we worked with them to build and train and tune the system. So we were lucky enough to know exactly what we were doing. So um, the, the consideration to use speech from the get-go was we had a model, you know, a week or two into the company, even before actually the company that was ours, why not use it? In retrospect, a lot of this is back explaining just if at any point we had to decide whether or not to deploy hundreds of thousands of dollars or not, that would have surfaced itself. A lot of these we got for quote unquote for free, or we had the knowledge in house from day zero. So we were just lucky enough. There were components here that were discussed and were deferred to later on. So we didn't start with everything in house from day zero. We had speech and we had basic MLP components, but harder stuff like diarization, or speaker separation took us, you know, two years to get to. And only when we absolutely needed to, did we build it in house. Let me ask you another question, like also on the sort of the psychological level, like, pardon me for phrasing it this way, but you're fully Israeli and I'm half Israeli, so I can get away with it. Did anyone care? In other words, did the VCs care? Did the customers care? Did customers care because it sounded sexy to them or did they care because they actually saw better results? Or was it just you guys wanted to build the perfect model and then no one cared, but, but you felt better at night because you'd built this thing? Like, where? where on that, those spectrum. It's more of a kind of a, a, uh, the story I found, which is great. I'm very happy to share. I think in 2015, when my ex-co-founder and I raised, we saw two kinds of VCs. 
One that handed us term sheets and the other that said, this is impossible. Those are the uh, best companies, by the way, the companies, those are the best companies have the, that is the breakdown of the VCs. Interesting. Uh, so the problem it was called, it's large vocabulary, continuous speech recognition and LVSDR, uh, LVCSR. At the time it wasn't solved. Like people literally, um, I remember sitting down in Sandel Road and said, look, Michal, the fact that you built this at, um, at Ginger for short utterances is very, very different. Remember this is early 2015 or mid 2015. There was nothing out there. There weren't, at least to my recollection, APIs that you could just send out an audio stream and get back a transcription. They said, you're not going to be able to reach, you know, an 85 or a 90% uh, precision, a 10% word error rate on continuous speech with allowed vocabulary out of domain. So part of us, because we, we were able to, to do this very, very early was to, you know, show that we had the tech ability to do this. Part of it was to make us, to raise our valuation, to raise what we thought was important. At the end of the day, it didn't really matter. Little did we know how quickly speech would be commoditized thereafter. At the time, you know, early, mid-2015, there was a real point of pride for us. We felt like, we felt that we had a real edge. It turned out to be a very, very small edge. Our biggest competitor, Gan, I think for the first two years of their existence, what they did is they used a company called VoiceBase that is a wrapper for Google. And, you know, they were just fine, right? Their precision was lower at the beginning, but they did obviously at the end of the day, just fine. So it didn't give us any ultimate advantage. VCs like to know that you have a moat. It was a moat. It was a very temporary moat. We were just at the cusp of things. RNN that just chimed in in 2014. That's recurrent neural networks. Uh, bringing another, it was basically 2014 was the the image net moment for for speech two, three years later. We were, again, one of the very first companies that had our own speech and it was very impressive at the time. I think by mid-2016, it was already something that people had more access to. Definitely 2017 and today there are companies that, you know, like Feedgram that allow you to just train models on the cloud and stuff like that. Okay, I interrupted you. Let's let's go back to the core story and then uh, try to take them. Yeah, no, that, that was great. So it, 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 in, in some to answer your question, part of it was premeditated. Part of it was just, you know, we were lucky enough to have it. So it was a no-brainer. And the only things that were really hard, we had to stop and ask and we usually deferred them. We'll get back to that a little later. So various different components that we had to develop at some point were protecting the conversation boundaries diarization which is speaker separation, realizing who's on the cloud, who's speaking at every moment, automatic speech recognition, the actual engine, the transcription engine, various other NLP tasks, the affect layer, transcript reunification, and automatically surfacing uh, differences between top performing and other reps. Detecting conversation boundaries. So imagine you want to develop a simple feature such as ensure that X was said in the first five minutes of the call or make sure action items were explained, were made explicit in the last five minutes. To do this, you need to understand when the conversation actually began and ended. The problem is that people are chronically late for calls. Though instead of a conversation beginning, you'll get the one to 15 minutes of waiting user for background noises in the beginning. So this is a slightly more technical, uh, I'll say before going in, but you don't want to basically catch, you know, Micha going on the call and saying, hey, is anybody here yet? And then a silence of 20 seconds. So we trained um, a voice activity detection model to distinguish noise and music from speech. 
We added any other noises that we discovered into the call to train the data and become better. We started with a, a, a GMM and I think then moved to a deep network. And then we built a very, very simple speaking density model, trained a classifier to pinpoint the exact moment a real conversation began more than X minutes, X words a minute. And again, saying like, hi, it's Jack. Is anyone here yet? Doesn't mean the conversation actually started. And obviously adding up all kinds of things like answering machines and automatic, you know, IBRs and stuff like that. Second part, I'm going through, um, not chronologically how things were built, but rather how, what you need to do in order to analyze a conversation. Some of these components we started using out of the box for just not building them at all. So imagine a call with five speakers, some perhaps in the same physical room, maybe all in the same physical room. How do we identify who's the rep, who's the prospect, and who's speaking when? If you think about it a second, some intuition of how hard this is, is if you ask the person to write down what somebody's saying in the conversation, they'd probably get an air, probably around 96% precision rate. But if you ask the person to blindly tell you who are five speakers in speaking, people that they don't know and maybe have similar voices, they will have a much higher error rate. The computer also is not great at doing that. It needs, it, voices vary, they change during overtime in the same time, depending on the acoustics, background, ambience and stuff like that. So the first step is building a kind of a universal background model, embedding speakers or as vectors using real data. And then you build a classifier to identify the reps using both text and video and voice features. And then you can try to basically match the voices you hear after you separated them into who the, the reps actually are. We did more than this. It's, it's basically a semi-supervised model. We patented this very interesting approach. Basically, we what we did is we gleaned, and this is a publicly available patent, we gleaned a signature for each speaker without having them to train it. Basically, if you know what a rep sounds like or their vocabulary, you know when they're going to be speaking, even without identifying it, with a high confidence, you can use their data to, to train a model for their voice and use it as a signature. Automatic speech recognition. So while we could have used off-the-shelf ASR engine, It'd be missing a lot in terms of accuracy, industry and company-specific terminology, words like Zoomtopia, Texylvania, non-trivial acoustic environments, driving, background noise in the office. So we trained several things. We had a language model, we built our language model, acoustic model, and we had a, a customized language model for every one of our customers. Also, we built our own phonetic dictionaries, which were generated on the fly. And then resulted in a chorus that achieved uh, about 20% better word error rate over cutting edge industry solutions. This is not how we started off with. So you asked before whether this was debated or not. Our first models were you know, slightly better than Google at that. It probably actually that's wrong. Or the ones we went to investors with weren't as good as Google even because it was trained on less data. But the more conversations we had in, we quickly became much better and better until we reached about a 20% improvement, which is very significant. It, it can it turn things from completely unintelligible to intelligible. So it's one in five words better, doing a better transcription on. In terms of NLP tasks, after analyzing who speaks and identifying what they said, it's time to understand the conversation itself. Then you do automatic topic modeling. So we used LDA to understand what topics were discussed. And we had a way of doing it, even if such topics were not pre predetermined. That's, I think, still confidential. So I won't 
discuss how we did it, but it was really cool. We model things like pain callings, high engagement volumes, risk indicators, et cetera, et cetera. And we identified when questions are asked and clustered them, what questions were open-ended, not open-ended, and how, in, how much they grow engagement. For example, we trained for pain points. We started out with some results. We built a very quick CFG and we trained, we reiterated. We had analysts review hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them very, very quickly. We fed them back into the system and so on and so forth until we got better. The results themselves, in order to search for similar results, we would embed them to expand the search and you know, semantically expand ourselves across pain points, different ways of saying the same thing. For prosody and affect, so voice has another dimension. Feeling and emphasis can turn the meaning of the text to a whole different meaning. Wow, that's cool. Wow, that's cool. Sounds very different. To do that and detect engagement, we extracted the pitch and uh, use uh, engagement classifier to identify where the stress is. Um, and remove batches where the text is not stressed at all, uh, or where that, you know, if it's a word that comes up that, you know, or an area in a sentence that is meaningless, sometimes pitch changes, but it doesn't really mean anything. So kind of an overlay of the semantic and the, the, the pitch layers there. Judification, so text versus transcribed text. When a speech recognition engine comes out, you know, right out of the oven, it doesn't look like much. You can see, all right, well, I'm happy to hear about that. Sounds like we're making great progress there. You need to add the punctuation, add the capitalization, and know, you know, make it beautiful. Sometimes it, the, the word beautification is because sometimes the text is really ugly. Sometimes there's just numerals in the middle uh, or partial words and stuff like that. It's very hard to read or make sense of. What we did is we trained a sequence model to learn where to put in punctuation, which is pretty cool. You're basically automatically learning where to put in commas and ends and question marks and so on and so forth. Automatically surfacing differences between top performing and other reps. We're able to identify features that separate top performing from lower performing reps. Some cool examples are inclusive versus inclusive language. So top reps uses, use words like we and us when discussing contracts. So we will send over the contract and let's review it together versus I will send it over and you will send it back to me. Action items, the top reps actually set action items way earlier in the conversation, probably around mid midway. And then at the end of the conversation, they just recap and make sure that, you know, everybody is uh, on the same page. Another difference we found is that all reps ask on average the same amount of questions, but the top reps ask more en engaging questions. So for example, instead of saying, who's the decision maker in your organization, they will ask something like, hey, can you tell me a little bit more about how decisions are made in your organization? So kind of disarming, open, letting the other side open up and speak. So a few closing notes. So as AI advances, many of the building blocks, which were once publicly unavailable and extremely hard to build are being commoditized. For example, speech over the past 10 years has, you know, made more progress in the previous 50 years easily. It's become more and more prudent to use first off-the-shelf solutions before attempting to build anything yourself. So if course had been founded in 2020, it would likely have taken many shortcuts, alluding back to your, your question earlier, Gil. That being said, having a business case where AI is core and requires uh, novel machine learning models can prove not only extremely fulfilling, but also an extremely valuable as a business advantage. So a pause here and happy to engage.
Wonderful. Thank you so much for a great talk. So I have a quick question and then afterwards we'll go to the audience. But if you were to build Chorus today, what would you do differently, if anything? And is there anything that you wish you knew then that you know now? Many things I wish I knew. I think obviously I would love to know that speech is not going to be a big uh, barrier to entry, not going to be a big mode where we come out of hive. I think we would have hired probably less researchers at day one. So first of all, if this was 2020, Google out of the box today is amazing. So you have to work very hard and probably spend probably $100,000 to do better than Google, right? That in terms of accuracy. If you have money, you don't want to spend it on doing it. You want to spend on moving quickly, not on building things from the ground up. Again, eventually you'll have to build it from the ground up because you don't want to spend two and a half dollars or two dollars on every hour that you're transcribing at scale and reduce increased cost effectiveness and margins. So that that's an example. We would just have hired less researchers. Probably one PhD would have been enough with a bunch of analysts to help improve things. We would have focused more on the NLP to begin with. A lot more people to help us model the language itself. So probably higher, rather than top researchers, probably higher analysts, which basically is at this stage of a company, it's a lot, it's very smart people that work very hard to read a lot of data, tag it, understand, extract patterns and surface them to one or two NLP experts that can help model these things. We would have started very early on with a lot of the heavy tagging using advanced today. There are great tagging systems, frameworks like uh, Prodigy, like Explosion AI, uh, that allow you to, to learn very quickly from your own data. So we would have done that. What else would I wish I would have known about the technology? I wish I knew how hard diarization was and it, that still it's an unsolved problem. I wish I knew that. We would have probably, we would have probably opted not to follow that. It took it, we spent so much money on it and so much effort. We would have probably opted to do things that were more doable. At the end of the day, we were able to solve things, but it took us, yeah, I don't want to even say how long and how much money. So sometimes you just don't know how hard a question is. It was elusively hard because the difference there when you diarize or when you extract who's speaking, when to get to great accuracy on two people is straightforward. To get to three people is pretty okay. Anything above is like very, very noisy. So the, the errors compound and you just get a lot of noise. I think we would have probably, you know, I we would have set low-hanging fruit differently, I think. But all in all, it's not, I don't think we made terrible mistakes at all. We did the best that we could given the knowledge we had. And we thought that a technological moat would be very important to us. You know, what I wish I knew or what I wish, you know, we would have done differently is at the end of the day, the go-to-market machine, I think is much more important that it is robust rather than building the most advanced cutting-edge technology. So, Era, we're super happy to have here. He's the CEO of Valohai, which is a, a company based in Finland. They also happen to be a portfolio company of ours. So, Era, you have the floor, and if, please feel free to like mention a little bit more about what Valohai does. Hi, thanks for the talk. It's extremely insightful and, and, and looks like you've built a pretty complex web of different models. Rare to see that in a company that's all already started a few years back. So we're an MLOps company. We focus on everything that's outside the model. So basically the pipeline. And my question revolves around a sort of new way that we look at machine learning products. And it's that the product is not actually the model, but it's more 
the pipeline that generates the model, including your data, your pre-processing training, all the code that goes into it. Since a model is rarely the thing that is fixed, that is constant. It's something that's ever-changing, breaking, retraining, advancing. So what are your thoughts after going like, I, I assume a huge amount of hand-built DevOps uh, on the back end, trying to make everything work. I'm, I'm sure there wasn't a lot of tools out there. So how did you go, go through all that? And how, how do you feel about that statement of uh, model not being the product, but the actual pipeline being the product? So I very much agree. The way we did it is by a lot of suffering, a lot of models that ended up not being what they should be and us not understanding why because the logs weren't right and somebody switched one file somewhere and God knows what happened or the same file name, wrong file name, one missing wave, the random seed being different in the training and a million other different choices and adding to the fact that, you know, Kaldi is by, by default is sometimes slightly random. So not knowing when you improve, when you don't improve, how you measure the model, not having things in place at the beginning cost us a very, very, very long time. And because we're a startup and moving very quickly, it took us a very long time to realize how much time we're, we're spending on it. So we started creating a formal framework. We moved it from research to engineering about two years in. So only about two years into the company do we actually have a, a recipe, let's call it that way, for training and deploying that we felt very confident about. Adding to that, something that I haven't spoken to about a lot, it's also something we patented, so I feel free to talk about. We had a, a way of taking specific data for customers and extracting the data that is most meaningful, most salient per specific customer and customizing the language model for that customer. So you can imagine we're not talking about one model, we're, we're talking about dozens and dozens of models, each needing to be deployed in a separate graph, a separate, a separate decoder. So the answer is, I, I know a little about what you guys do and tools like that, I'm sure will become extremely, extremely valuable for companies. I think the challenge you probably are experiencing is that researchers don't like frameworks to begin with. A lot of times they think in, oh, this is really cool. Let me just deploy this. Let me just play around with this. So, but having workflows that make sense that are robust is our, our huge value for for companies and probably I'm, I'm guessing, I don't know that you see pretty good adoption with larger, larger or later stage companies. That would be just an uneducated guess. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that there's a new wave of people coming from very advanced companies like Facebook, like, like your company, like Uber, where they've seen the internal tooling and then they, they join a new startup as, a, as the first researcher or head of AI, and they immediately realize how much work there is ahead of them before they can get to that. I, I think that there's a new sort of way of startups coming where we do see people coming and looking for existing tools. But for sure, we see more like advanced companies that have already sort of had a few problems, uh, a few whoopsies, let's say, in the production environment. <laughs> yes. It's a, we shall not talk about them. <laughs> it's, it's good to see you here, here again, Nero. And it's like, thanks for the talk. Yeah. And, and some pretty amazing job work I have to see. Like after seeing, we started in 2016 and I think I've talked to, I, I keep a sort of like hand wavy record of, of how many top companies I've talked to that do machine learning. It's about 500 and there's 
very, very few companies that have adopted deep learning at the scale that you have. And and to see you done, you're doing that so early on, it's uh, very cutting edge. Thank you very much. And I look forward to hearing about great things coming from you. I think what you're doing is super, super interesting and important. Thanks. Thanks. Awesome. Next question is from Yotam Azriel, founder, uh, one of the three co-founders of a company called TensorLeap. They're in our portfolio, but they're kind of in stealth. So I'll let Yotam decide how much he wants to reveal about what they do. So shortly, we company dealing with uh, explainable AI and uh, optimization for neural networks. We're creating a IDE for neural networks that integrated to the normal dev flow. And actually, in order exactly to do what you're recommending here, to create your own AI stack within the company. So what we saw to know that people are wasting too much money in order to, to try so many stuff all the time. And it's one of the reasons that they're not getting like you recommended into the area of designing their own model, they're more busy with the data and the post-processing, what we think that can be tackled in a better way. So we're providing those tools. Because my own experience showed me that the differences between different data sets are huge. The space of data set in every task is, is so huge. And so on, I wanted to ask you if, well, I guess that, as you said, you started for some model, but how much customization you made to this structure in order to get to the best results you have right now? So the question is how, how much customization we had to do on, on the architectures or on the data or? Architecture of the model itself. Because for example, you, you mentioned that you need to take in, the, in uh, consideration the pitch. And in order to do so, you can create and create architecture that extracting features in neural networks from the pitch during time and extracting information from words and maybe some other features from the voice and combining all this information within the neural network, which, well, it's quite unique model to create in order to do your own task, right? Yeah, so actually pitch is almost straightforward and you kind of decide ahead of time what the features are, or at least that's what we did for engagement and detecting pitch is a solved problem or almost solved problem. And then combining the semantics of words is something that you can use with very very straightforward features. So I think for that, we just used it, you know, traditional machine learning without having to, to build a deep model, but for... For other examples, like when you want to account, when you want to expand the vocabulary, you want to add words, you want to optimize for a specific acoustic surrounding, there is a hell of a lot of customization, weeks and weeks of training. Specifically, you know, an acoustic model could take two, three weeks to train on dedicated machines. Very costly each time you train it. You know, there's a, a process of automatically adding data into the model, what data to crunch and how to understand that data. So for us, the data was both the voice itself, the words, and also the representation of words. So imagine, let's say you want to add words on automatically, right? Like, um, I don't know, let's say the word Yotam is uh, not a word in English, but it's the name of a CEO of a founder. And you want to make sure that when you talk with TensorLeap, that Yotam is transcribed correctly. Question is, how do you add that at scale into models? You can have an analyst go and add all these words in that obviously only doesn't scale, but 
I mean, even if it does scale, it doesn't really exhaustively cover things not automatically. And a really cool way that we came up with doing this was, uh, and also covered by a publicly available patent, so I feel free to, to share, you could uh, crawl a website of TensorLeap uh, and find out that the names of the founders is Tang. And that's great because then you have the word Yotam to add in, but you actually only have half of the puzzle because you have no idea how Y-O-T-A-M is pronounced because it's not a word in English. So great that you added it to the vocabulary, but you don't, you have no way of, of guessing. I mean, you don't, how, how do you, how is that represented, right? You don't have any evidence, any tagging of, of that, of Y-O-T-A-M. And then you have to train what is called the G to P, graphene to phoneme model, which is uses deep learning to kind of guess how different morphemes sound like, how different graphemes sound like. And you take all of those components, mix them up together and hope that something good comes out when you put them in the graph. So I don't know if that answered your question or if that was your question, but I, I hope I gave shed some light. Yeah, definitely. And though, though I'm... I want to ask and maybe to point that I think the reason that you compose different algorithms together, like many other companies and didn't create your, you know, a single model that doing everything in one shot is that it's just too expensive because it's a black box. And in order to, to get this model, like, you know, ResNet built after they created so many things, but they used a very simple data set. So it was easier to just try many things until you get there. And maybe the reason that it's that expensive to do so is that, you know, someone needs just to put some light there, then people can take decision into to architecture it in, in uh, the proper tools will make this problem doable. Yeah. Look, it's a great point. I think as people that are, are versed in the field, we know that end-to-end -end learning is is, you know, having its heyday, right? There's a lot of models that are reaching state of the art without different components, just from quote-unquote sequence to sequence or X to Y. And a lot of people say that is the future, but exactly as you said, then you have a black box and when things don't work, you know, God help you, basically. Do you create your own visualization in order to explain your model somehow? At course, we did not. I'm no logos make for us, but I'm happy to forward it there. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. So last question from the Orharel, Tel Aviv-based founder of a company called Fixify. They're in the logistics space. Hello. Uh, first of all, uh, Mishnah, thank you so much for the insightful uh, conversation. And uh, Angular team, thank you so much for setting everything up. A little bit about Fixify. Uh, we use AI to bring clarity to uh, supply chain financial relationships. Basically, um, all of the contracts and price lists and uh, um, data moving from uh, sellers to buyers in this space um, is own process a very manual and uh, utilizing uh, spreadsheets and, and communication. And we, we uh, try to sort everything out. Um, my question uh, relates to the go-to-market machine and uh, scalability and development. Um, you know, uh, we try to implement the lean methodologies to everything we do and to meet the customers to get validated learning from everything we do with the customer. And um, when we address the machine learning some, and, and you know, to pick the right stack and, and to build everything, we try to combine. So any advice for doing that would be very helpful. Thank you. 
So thank you for the question. I'm not sure I followed. You're asking about the go-to-market machine and specifically about how to harmonize the the development of AI with the go-to-market machine. Is that the question? How to harmonize the lean methodologies and to, you know, validate uh, learning from your customers with the scalability of the development in the early stages. Yeah, I, th I think what you're asking, Lior, is like as you onboard new customers and they each have their own specific data, right? How do you make sure that your data science team and your customer onboarding are working somehow harmoniously so that you're not building models you don't need to need, are building models you do need? And can you make that scalable or is that just an endlessly painful cycle of building custom models for every customer? Is that, is that what you're asking? Pretty much. Thank you, Gil. Okay. Thanks, Gil, and thanks, Leo. By the way, this is a huge theme, as you know, like Martin yeah. Fado has written about this. It's, it's, it's a, I think it's a question on the minds of a lot of AI founders, and if it's not on their mind, it should be, because this is where they run into these kind of economics of ML, which become very, very problematic in, in certain use cases. I, I don't know if you saw this at Chorus, but yeah. No, for sure. We had custom language models for each different customer, and that was very costly. I think, Leo, I'll, I'll answer on two levels. One is, A, you should always strive to minimize the amount of customization you do per customer. So when any model you build, if you're able to build components, underlying components, universal components, as part of the model, it costs you less, it's much quicker, there's less noise, you're less likely to fudge up. When we discussed before the diarization, it was a great example. You have a UBM, a universal background model that you built either once or for all, or the more customers you add in, the more robust the model gets. Same goes for an acoustic model in speech recognition. And with vocabulary, there's also ways of doing it so that you can, rather than rebuilding an entire new language model each time, you simply add or bias specific components of the language model. So at a very high level, you always want to strive to create generic models and not, not uh, customer-specific ones. Sometimes that's unfortunately not possible, but often you'll find that with the right architecture, the right thought about how to create the algorithm, you're able to do it in a way that adding more data, it actually increases the robustness of the entire model. And sometimes you just do it with two, two separate models that are weighted differently one large background one and one that is customer specific that is much cheaper to train and uh, much quicker and cheaper to train. And sometimes you can just get away without doing any of that. That's one level. The second level is the go-to-market machine itself. I think it's really important that there's full transparency and understanding between the people that are leading the go-to-market machine, sales, marketing, sometimes product, and the people that are actually building things, which are research development and sometimes product. One great way of doing it is by using call analytics. So having a product like Chorus or Gong, where you can actually allow the developers and engineers to hear the voice of the customer to understand what the go-to-market is trying to do and what they're promising people in their own words. So you don't have to guess and things aren't lost, especially when the go-to-market machine is actually talking with, they're selling a technical tool. So they'll be speaking with technical people. So things aren't lost in the conversation. I also recommend before making any decision uh, that is heavy on the R&D, having somebody from the R&D join a conversation it creates two things. One, it creates solidarity across your teams, understanding of a strong sense of solidarity of, of partnership between the R&D and, um, and the, the go-to-market machine, the go-to-market people. 
And the other is just a deeper understanding of what it is that you need to build. And often conversations like that or listening into conversations like that, you can think of creative shortcuts, creative ways around rebuilding a wheel or recustomizing everything and building everything from scratch. Cool. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. I've got one, one final question for you. As these seasoned founders, part of our job is to try to look forward to the future. And when you think about the way the ML startup landscape is going to look in the next five or 10 years, do you think we're headed towards a future where the tooling has gotten so much better that everybody is building in-house models for all kinds of interesting edge cases? Or do you think we're gonna, it's going to look more like a future where the third-party models and tooling is so good that no one's building models in-house? Like, what does this conversation look like 10 years from now? It's an amazing, it's a great question, Gita. Um, I, the answer is I don't know. I, I would guess that what you see mostly is that it's all third-party providers, except in very, very specific use cases. That would be my guess. A lot of it is going to be provided as a service. That would be my guess. Prices are going to drop. I think, let's take a concrete example, speech. There'll be some margin, but prices are going to drop. There will be basically the cost. There will be some margin to, to make it uh, worthwhile, but uh, prices are going to drop. Even today, you see that in different tiers. So Google sells different quality of models at a different rate. I think it's uh, six thousands of a cent per 15 minutes of one grade and nine thousands of a cent for, for a higher level model. So I think a lot of it, like most companies will be able to do everything without ever having to train or build anything. And the companies that are forging forward and at the edge of, of capabilities will still be building things in-house. So I think both, basically, I'm hedging my bet. I think both are going to be true. Most of what AI does definitely today will be easily uh, accessible as a, an API. And yet all the, all the companies that are doing cutting edge and pushing the limits of where we are five, 10 years from now, for example, probably 10 years from now, we'll may not have passed the Turing test, but we'll be getting pretty damn close to it. Companies that will be tackling real conversational agents will still likely need to be building things in-house, for example. That would be my guess. Right. Cool. Very, very interesting. Micha, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Really, really interesting. And, and I think not only was this a great talk, but I, I would think it's going to have a, an, an interesting shelf life in our library of very, very useful, practical advice for how to, how to approach some of these issues. And I, I suspect over time, you're going to get a lot of inbound email from CTOs trying to pick your brain. So I hope you're ready for that. Great. So that, I'm, I'm happy I misspelled my email. No, I'm joking, but I, I'll, <laughs> I'll have to come back 10 years from now and see, and, and see how, I, how I did with this final question. It's a real, real pleasure. And thank you so much for organizing this so seamlessly. Eve, thank you so much for inviting me. It's always a real pleasure. Uh, I love the team at Angular and I think you're doing amazing things. So thank you for having me. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Bye guys. Bye-bye.